Hello and welcome to our latest Pensions Lawcast. This is the 26th in the series and today we'll be looking at the often thorny issue of overpayments. Pension scheme administrators have an extremely difficult job to do. The legislative landscape that we operate in and pension scheme benefit structures are hugely complex. Overwhelmingly, schemes get it right and members receive the correct benefits. But errors do happen and members do sometimes end up receiving more than their strict legal entitlement. So in that context, Amina is going to start by exploring trustees' duties as they apply to the recovery of overpayments. Rebecca is then going to look at some of the defences to recovery that members may raise. We'll touch on some particular issues that can arise where there's been an overpayment of a transfer value. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Joanna Price, Assistant General Counsel at Willis Towers Watson, who will be giving us the inside of you of how they approach this issue as a business. So without further ado, I'll pass over to Amina to kick off with an overview of the legislative framework regarding recovery of overpayments. Thank you. As Mark mentioned, I'm going to talk about the legal and tax position of overpayments. The starting position is that members do not have a right to benefits paid in error, subject to member defences, which Rebecca will discuss in more detail. Jo will touch upon how overpayments arise in practice. Trustees have a duty to pay the correct benefits to members and beneficiaries in accordance with their scheme rules. An overpayment is a breach of this duty and the starting point is that trustees should seek to recover and stop any future overpayments. There are four ways to seek recovery of an overpayment and they are repayment by way of lump sum, repayment by instalments, reduce future pension payments by a set amount so that the overpayment is recovered over an agreed period or stop all future payments until the overpayment has been recovered. Trustees should consider the best option taking into account how the overpayment arose and the member's financial circumstances. As a general rule, legislation prevents a pension from being assigned, commuted, surrendered, charged or subjected to a lien or set off. However, there is an exception which permits a charge, lien or set off for the purpose of discharging a member's monetary obligation due to the scheme which arose as a result of a benefit payment error. Court approval is not required for the trustees to exercise recoupment if there is no dispute regarding the amount. If the member disputes the amount of the monetary obligation, money can only be reclaimed if the obligation has become enforceable pursuant to the order of a competent court. The decision in the case of Burgess v Bick suggested that a determination by the pension ombudsman did not meet this requirement. However, TPO has disagreed very vocally with this decision and considers that he is a competent court and so may direct that trustees are entitled to exercise recoupment against a member where there is a dispute. Turning to limitation periods, in England and Wales, the time limit for recovery of an overpayment is six years from the date of the incorrect payment. In Scotland, the time limit is five years. At what point does the repayment limitation period stop running? This was discussed in the case of Weber v Department of Education. In that case, it was decided that the clock would stop at the date of receipt by TPO of the pension scheme's letter of response to Mr Weber's complaint. This case creates potential obstacles for trustees as they'll need to consider how best to preserve a claim and maximise recovery. Conversely, savvy members may be able to resist a claim 
for full recovery of an overpayment by delaying or drawing out an attempt to resolve the dispute through the use of IDRP, such that the limitation period has expired. More helpfully, in the Burgess v Bit case, the judge opined, albeit obiter, that the six-year limitation period does not apply to equitable recruitment claims. In light of this judicial analysis, trustees are likely to favour recovering an overpayment by deduction from future pension payments, as it would suggest that it can be used to avoid the six-year limitation issue. There may be instances where the trustees decide not to recover an overpayment. This can be where the amount of the overpayment is disproportionately small compared to recovery costs, where the trustees face incurring significant legal costs in obtaining a court order before recovering modest payment amounts, where the member has died and particularly where the member's personal representative declines requests of repayment, where there is no other method short of litigation and where the trustees believe the member has a strong defence. Where the scheme has overpaid benefits, there may be tax consequences for the member and the scheme, depending on whether or not the overpayment is an unauthorised member payment. An overpayment is unauthorised unless it falls within an exception set out in the Registered Pension Schemes Regulations 2009. In most cases, it is possible to avoid an error creating an unauthorised payment. The authorised payment regulations allow subject to certain requirements, pensions which are generally paid in error, pensions paid after the discovery of the error, but where reasonable steps had been taken to prevent further overpayments after the discovery, an overpayment pension commencement lump sum due to miscalculation, an overpayment of pension for up to six months after the death of the recipient to be treated as an authorised payment. In cases which are not covered by the authorised payment regulations, where an overpayment is not repaid, the overpayment is likely to be an unauthorised payment. An unauthorised payment will give rise to up to three tax charges, which are an unauthorised payments charge of 40% on the amount of the unauthorised payment, an unauthorised payment surcharge of an additional 15%, and a scheme sanction charge payable by the scheme administrator of 40% of the unauthorised payment. I'll now hand it over to Rebecca, who's going to look at defences to the recovery of overpayments. Thanks, Amina. When faced with actions to recover an overpayment, the main defence typically used by a member or advisor is that the member has undergone a change of position. In essence, this is where a member claims that they have changed their position so much as a result of the overpayment it would be inequitable in all the circumstances to require them to pay back the overpaid amounts. There are other defences, principally estoppel or contractual promise arguments, which a member might also raise. However, these defences are harder for a member to make out successfully and tend to be raised less often on that basis. For that reason, I'm going to be focusing on the change of position defence in this lawcast. In order to establish the change of position defence, the member must first show that they have taken some action which would mean that they would be worse off if they were now required to pay back the entire overpayment. Paradoxically, this means that in most cases, a member who has spent an overpayment is usually in a better position than one who has saved it. However, this is not as straightforward as simply showing that the member has spent the overpaid money. For example, 
The Court of Appeal held in Scottish Equitable and Derby that payment of a debt, such as a mortgage, does not necessarily mean that the member has made themselves worse off. Instead, a debt will usually have to be paid off sooner or later. The use of the overpaid amounts simply brought forward the date of repayment. However, this will not always be so clear cut. For example, if the debt that was paid off was on particularly favourable terms and the member needs to take on a new loan on far less generous terms to repay the overpayment, the repayment of the original loan could be seen as an action to their detriment. This principle has also been applied, albeit less consistently, to circumstances where the member has used the overpaid amounts to fund home improvements. For example, in the case of Mrs N last year, the pensions ombudsman noted that the new kitchen which the member had purchased with the overpaid sums was likely to improve the value of her property, and therefore the cost could be recouped on the eventual sale of the house. As such, the member was not financially any worse off for making these improvements. In contrast, in the earlier case of Mr Clifton 2014, the pensions ombudsman did find that the member had a change of position defence after having used the overpaid amounts to purchase a conservatory for his house. Additionally, in order to be a change of position, the change must usually be irreversible. This is particularly relevant where a member has used the overpayments to purchase particular items, such as a car. In the case of Mr Y in 2018, where the member had purchased a new car, trailer and boat following receipt of the overpayment, the pensions ombudsman noted that there was a healthy second-hand market for the items purchased, and so the member could reverse the purchases with minimal effort and expense. Even if a member establishes that they have suffered a detriment, this is not enough on its own. The member must also establish that, but for the overpayment, they would not have suffered the detriment. In other words, they must show a link between receiving the overpayment and their change of position. This part of the defence is very fact specific, but it's worth noting that the pensions ombudsman does not always take a member friendly approach. For example, in the case of Mrs R in 2017, the ombudsman found that gifts made by the member to her children totalling almost £33,000 would have been made by her irrespective of whether she had received the overpaid amounts. Finally, the member must not be disqualified from bringing a change of position defence, which for the vast majority of cases will be a question of whether the member acted in bad faith when changing their position. Bad faith is not just limited to cases where the member actually knew that they were not entitled to the overpaid amounts but also includes where the member suspected that they were not entitled to it, but did not take any steps to alert the trustee or administrators to the fact that there may have been an overpayment. The High Court confirmed in Weber and Department for Education that if a member has reason to believe a payment they're receiving might be an overpayment, and they could make a simple inquiry to check whether this was the case, but chose not to do so, it would be inequitable to allow that member to rely on a change of position defence. A member would also be disqualified from bringing a change of position defence if the overpayment was caused by their own action. For example, if they did not inform the scheme about a pensioner's death. Change of position is not an all or nothing defence, and instead it can be a partial defence to recovery. For example, if a member can establish that they irreversibly spent some, but not all, of the sums to their detriment as a consequence of the overpayment, they can resist paying back just that part of the overpayment. I'm now going to pass back over to Mark, who will be taking us through some of the issues associated with overpayments of transfer values. Thanks very much, Rebecca, for that. Um, now, from time to time, you may get a situation where an incorrectly calculated transfer value has been paid to another arrangement. 
This can give rise to different issues to an overpayment of pension or lump sum. A detailed analysis of the issues that can arise in such situations is beyond the scope of this law cast. The key difference though between an overpaid transfer value and an overpaid pension or lump sum is the tax issues that may arise. Even then and within that, the more complicated scenario is in relation to the reimbursement of any overpaid transfer as opposed to the treatment of the transfer out in the first place. And the position really hinges on whether or not the member has crystallised benefits in the receiving scheme. For example, if they've taken a lump sum or started to draw down benefits in that arrangement and how the reimbursement is then to be paid back, whether it's from the individual's own funds or from the assets held in the receiving arrangement. The tax issues are likely to be very fact specific. And I think my message really is that you're likely to need to obtain advice as to the options available in the specific situation you find yourself in, as a solution that works for one situation may well not be applicable to another. Now, moving to the final section of this law cast, one of the challenges with overpayments is not so much a legal one, but rather a reputational one. Trustees and third party administrators often find themselves in quite an unpalatable situation where they're entitled to recover the overpayment, but that process could attract negative PR. Think of the sort of Daily Mail headline threat of the widow being forced to sell their house to sell uh, to repay an overpayment. I think it just goes to show how nuanced this area is and that there is um, a blurring of the distinction between the, the, the sort of strict legal position as to recovery and practically what trustees and third party administrators would do in this sort of situation. And I think that neatly segues into the final section. And I'm now going to hand over to Joe, who is going to give the insider view. Thanks, Mark. Hello. I'm going to give the insider view on overpayments, as Mark mentioned. So far, this discussion has focused on the legal position from a trustee perspective, but the same legal analysis applies to the administrator. Of course, where a scheme has outsourced its pension administration, it is likely that the overpayment will have been made by the administrator, and so it will usually fall to them to recover the overpayment on behalf of the scheme. WTW has seen our trustee clients increasingly asking us to take assignments of the claims to recover overpayments from recipients in order that we continue to pursue them. This is something we agree to if the circumstances are right. Having said that, even in cases where we've taken an assignment, we work very much in partnership with our clients in particular in terms of agreeing to the parameters for how far we and they would want to go in terms of pursuing the recovery in each case. Given the volume of transactions which our business carries out, it is inevitable that overpayments do on occasion occur. And the overpayments we can see happen for a variety of reasons. Overpayments arising from overpaid transfer values, retirement benefits, so lump sums and the pension itself, spouses' pensions, duplicate or incorrect payments and other reasons. One area where we've seen an uptick in recent times is with transfer payments. I don't see this as being symptomatic of an issue with transfers per se, but I think this is just a natural consequence of the fact that the volume of transfers taking place has increased exponentially in recent years. 
On a practical level, overpayments mean that my colleagues in our pensions admin business, supported by me and other legal colleagues, spend a great deal of time every time we make an overpayment, dealing and engaging with the recipient to attempt recovery. As soon as an overpayment is identified, the whole process has to be handled very sensitively. And one of the reasons it is time consuming for us is that each case has to be considered on its own facts. Even in circumstances where the same systemic error has caused a number of individuals to receive overpayments, we will not be able to apply a uniform approach to recovery, as our ability to recover the overpayment is wholly dependent on the individual circumstances of the recipient. A key consideration for us at the outset is always to consider to what extent that recipient could have unreasonably known that they'd received an overpayment. In cases where the member should or could have known, we will find it much easier to recover the overpayment usually. However, this is not often the case, especially with transfer cases. In terms of the recovery process and what that looks like, it will typically involve several rounds of correspondence a letter explaining that the overpayment has occurred and why, together with an explanation of their duty to repay, further correspondence encompassing a consideration of change of position arguments and any defence arguments that Rebecca has mentioned, together with the provision of supporting evidence in some cases provided by the recipient and our consideration of that. Sometimes there may be an escalation by the recipient to IDRP and ultimately a complaint may be made to the pensions ombudsman, although it is rare that we would contest an overpayment to that stage. A big hurdle for us in dealing with transfer cases in particular is when we are faced with a recipient who simply is not engaging with us at all. In a transfer situation, we see this more often because, of course, the recipient no longer has a relationship with the scheme in his or her own mind. So we have no leverage to try to recover the overpayment with them. And that means it is much easier for the member to just ignore the correspondence and our calls. It can be very difficult to move these cases forward. Sometimes the recipient might respond initially, but then just not engage with the fact that they need to repay, explain why not, or if that is the case, even agree to a plan to repay. Again, we struggle to move these cases on and sometimes as a last resort, we have to consider the possibility of pursuing the recipient more formally, for example, using a court recovery process. I should say that in our experience, usually the threat of this is enough to get some sort of engagement from the recipient and the use of formal legal proceedings is extremely rare. Going back to the transfer overpayment example, another point to note is that the route to recovery can be less straightforward in terms of the logistics of getting the money back to the scheme or to us in cases where we've taken the assignment. We are not able to, for example, restructure the member's pension benefits to deduct an overpayment over a period of time. So they receive slightly less pension each month and pay back the overpayment over an agreed time frame, as we would, for example, with a pensioner who may have received an overpayment. In transfer cases, it depends where the transfer went, how long ago the payment was made and where the money is now. Either the member will need to make a payment back to the scheme or typically they will need to instruct the receiving scheme to do so. As Mark has already mentioned, this can be more complicated if the recipient has started to draw down on his or her pension from the receiving scheme. There are tax and other practical considerations that mean depending on the amount involved, Sometimes we have to take the view that the overpayment is simply not worth pursuing. In summary, overpayments are a time consuming and complicated area for us. 
as a business, we are continuing to focus our efforts on avoiding overpayments happening in the first place. But when they do arise, the resolution and or recovery of the overpayment is a far from simple process. Back to you, Mark. Thanks very much, Jay. It's um, absolutely fascinating to hear your perspective on this issue. Uh, well, all that remains is for me to thank you for listening into this lawcast. The next session, we will be looking at GMP equalisation in the context of bulk annuity transactions. Until then, thank you and goodbye.